welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. I would like to begin this evening by reading Isaiah chapter 5. This will be verses 1 through 7. And this is because it's virtually impossible to correctly understand and apply Jesus' parable of the vine in John 15 until we understand Isaiah's parable of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. So as you take a couple of minutes to turn there, I'll give a brief introduction to you all. Jesus was not the first to introduce a parable about a vine or to use a vineyard and vine as a device of illustration. Through the Old Testament prophets, God had repeatedly described the nation of Israel as his vineyard. Uh, Israel served as God's vineyard. But even after centuries of divine nurturing, uh, the nation at large, the nation uh, remained a vineyard lacking fruit. And this is at least partially because the old covenant was made with an an entire Hebrew ethnicity, physical descendants of Abraham. And it is among them uh, that only a small number of Jews, uh, described as a remnant, had ever believed. And then considering the, the broad scope or the breadth of the people under the old covenant, uh, there, there was a minuscule return very small return of fruit. And what God deemed his vineyard under the old covenant, it never reached its full potential. That is going to change under the new covenant because in Christ there is fruit. That will be the title of this evening's message. In Christ there is fruit. And during our earlier scripture reading, at the scene of the Last Supper, John chapter 15, Jesus bridges that familiar vineyard theme with his disciples, a theme found in Psalm 80 and Jeremiah chapter 2 and Ezekiel chapter 15 and and Hosea 10. And he bridges that with the new covenant. None of those references are particularly flattering of Israel, uh, but most notable is Isaiah chapter 5. Israel was a vine that, that did not bear fruit, so what does God announce that he will do? This is Isaiah chapter 5, the parable of the vineyard. In verse 1 we read, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. 
My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what I have, than what I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So the nation of Israel, the entire Hebrew ethnicity was God's vine. It was his vineyard. But after many generations, there there came little to no useful fruit from its branches. You know, what might we expect God to do with the garden after all of those centuries of nurturing an unproductive vine? Well, I think he might begin anew with another vine. In a, in a whole new garden with different people representing new branches and who will absolutely bear fruit this time. So in John 15, Jesus describes God's new vine under a new covenant as sprouting branches that will unequivocally bear fruit. Every single branch in Christ will bear fruit. In Christ, there is fruit. What will God then do to any and all dead branches that will not produce fruit? Well, let's see what Jesus says by returning to John chapter 15. Having just excused Judas Iscariot from the meeting, he was one of those fruitless branches who betrayed Jesus. It was a paltry 30 pieces of silver. Um, He has now been removed from the scene. And Jesus turns then to the 11 disciples who remain. And he says, I am the true vine. It's the final of seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. Uh, I am declarations, the bread of life. The good shepherd. He is the I am. 
And he finishes with an unequivocal statement with his disciples, I am now the true vine. By employing that term, true, he is he's revealing to his disciples, I am genuine. This is for real this time. Israel is no longer God's vineyard as it has been judged while Jesus emphatically conveys in this final I am that he is now the vine. Edwin Blum, who was a professor at Dallas Seminary uh, back in the 90s, he writes in the New Bible Commentary, he says, quote, Israel was God's choice vine on which he lavished care and attention. He longed for fruit, but the vine, Israel, became degenerate and produced rotten fruit. Therefore, as the true vine, he fulfills what God had intended for Israel, writes Blum. The father is the gardener who cultivates and protects the vine. End of quote. Take take note of that last statement by Blum. Now Jesus is God's vine, and then he references the Father as the vine dresser. That that is assuring that God is going to directly cultivate these branches of the vine. If you're using the King James, uh, the word husbandman uh, completely loses the meaning because we simply don't use that type of language any longer. while the term vine dresser correctly implies that God is actively working this vine. He identifies dead branches that will bear no fruit, and he takes them away. There will be no fruitless branches allowed under this new covenant. And the taking away, seen in verse 2, it means exactly that, that the Father takes them away. The destiny of those dead branches, or non-fruit-bearing branches, is found in verse 6. The Holman Christian Standard Version accurately translates verse 2 as, branches that he removes. He takes them away, he removes them, and uh, one reason the the removal image is important is because the verse itself contrasts the experience of the branches that are taken away to the experience of the branches that are pruned and remain. The fruit-bearing branches that are pruned, or rather cleaned by the vine dresser, uh, they end up bearing even more fruit. All right. Notice in the next verse, Jesus tells the 11 remaining disciples, you are already clean because of the word, because of the word that I have spoken to you. So, so the cleansing agent is the word of God. The act of cleansing with the Word of God is the pruning process of the Father and it produces more fruit. 
We'll see, it even produces much fruit. Over time, you'll probably encounter an alternate explanation that uh, suggests these dead branches in verse 2 are not taken away, but, but just lifted up. That interpretation is out there. According to that view, the branches are lifted up off the ground. They are suspended, which is a technique sometimes used uh, with vines. But translators of the Bible know that lifts them up is not the most natural understanding of the Greek. And it is the reason that all literal translations, even, even the New Living Translation, they all agree the correct rendering is he takes away, he removes, or even the New Living Translation says he cuts them off. He removes them. And the overarching backdrop of Isaiah's parable of the vineyard and the immediate context within the passage, that is verse 6, it reveals that God removes them for judgment. Jesus' own decision, his choice to apply Isaiah's parable of the vineyard to this last Passover with his disciples assures that God's judgment against the, well, the unfruitfulness of Israel has finally arrived. And those branches who refused to abide with Jesus will be judged. That is exemplified in Judas Iscariot. He, he just left the building. And Judas became a branch that was taken away. Now, Israel's judgment, to be clear here, uh, the judgment on Israel and removal of the, the, uh, the parameters given to them as an ethnicity does not in any way mean that Jews cannot be saved under the new covenant, all right? They, they surely can. There are 11 of them sitting with Jesus right now as he speaks to them. Uh, but the new vine, or, or the true vine, does ensure that the old vineyard has been plowed under. Hebrews 8 verse 13 assures us the old covenant is now rendered obsolete as Jesus proclaims, I am the true vine. Now abide in me. Judas Iscariot did not abide in Jesus. Yeah, he started out enjoying the same benefits as the others. He traveled alongside the, the other 11. Uh, he got to be enlightened by the teaching of Jesus. He, he tasted of that heavenly gift, uh, was present during the partaking of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, mighty things done by the Holy Spirit in Jesus, and he had tasted of the good word of God. But Judas' departure reveals, just as Hebrews 3 verse 12 warns, you know, take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart 
that falls away from the living God. That passage in Hebrews cautions Christians by citing the fate of the Israelites who perished in the wilderness. They they wandered in the wilderness and they perished. And those Israelites did not lose their salvation. They never had salvation. And likewise, Judas's falling away only proves that he too was harboring an evil, unbelieving heart that fell away from the living God. And the defection of Judas, it's, it supplies the backlighting when Jesus begins with the parable. The, the failure of Israel is God's vineyard. While Jesus urges his disciples that remain to abide. Abide. Abide by bearing fruit and prove to be his disciples. In fact, at the Last Supper, Jesus could have asked his disciples, you know that Israel was God's vine, right? They would have replied, yes, yes. Uh, But with the dawn of a new covenant, that is no longer the case. Jesus says, I am the true vine. You do not become attached to God through the nation of Israel any longer. You don't have to be a Jew. You don't have to convert to Judaism. Um, You must come to God and you must remain attached to God through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said Jesus just a few moments prior to this. And that nobody comes to the Father but through me. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He is, Hebrews 8 verse 6, the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. A better covenant with better promises. And the bridge between the old and the new covenants is going to be crossed in just a few more hours from right now. And it will be crossed through the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. That bridge between covenants will be crossed. And after Jesus takes his last breath and cries, it is finished, that bridge is going to be burned. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove sins. This, this is the scene of the, of the Last Supper that Jesus has with his disciples. You know, the Passover has already begun, much like we look outside. The sun has already set for the disciples. So the Passover has begun, and it is an eve before the dawn of a whole new covenant through Christ. And he is going to be raised from the dead in just three days. 
All the wheels are in motion. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. And he continues in verse 4 saying, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Listen to that. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Fruit bearing requires abiding. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Bearing fruit assures your abiding. Can't bear fruit without abiding. Folks, we we sometimes make this passage a little more difficult uh, than it actually is. But the image is, is mostly straightforward and simple. Bearing fruit, it's a very simple image, a vine. And bearing fruit is contingent upon abiding. Contingent upon it. You must remain to bear any fruit. And abiding means to permanently remain in God's vine. Where he says, or else there's never fruit. The branch, verse 2, that is taken away and burned... Please look at that. The branch, verse 2, that is taken away and burned, verse 6, is taken away precisely because, like Judas, it has never borne any fruit. God takes it away. And Jesus describes it in verse 2 as a branch that does not bear fruit. No Fruit on those branches. None. There are ideas in theology which distort this passage uh, to propose that, you know, you can lose your salvation. But it is a fruitless argument. Because the idea of losing your salvation cannot propose this branch in verse 2 bore fruit for a while and then stopped bearing fruit because that is not even remotely what the passage says. Instead, verse 2 assures that every branch, look at it, every branch, every single branch that does bear fruit, the Father prunes it so that it will bear even more fruit. This passage actually serves as a defense for the perseverance of the saints because a branch must abide to bear any fruit. And the promise is, if you bear any fruit, God is going to make it and shape it so that you bear much fruit. It's all in God's hands. 
But verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, Judas Iscariot again, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So Judas is the exemplar of a false convert who doesn't abide, he doesn't remain, and therefore doesn't bear fruit. Doesn't abide. Can't bear fruit unless you abide. Instead, Judas defects. You know, we'll, we all observe this. You know, we see people whom we love, they apostatize, it, it grieves us. But they did not lose their salvation. You cannot lose what you do not have. And precisely as Jesus revealed when interpreting for his disciples the parable of the soils, you may see a sprout. It may poke up for a little while, but it is devoid of fruit. Which in the soils, likewise. There's only fruit produced with the good soil. Or else there is no salvation. Poking up out of the soil amongst thorns, thistles, that is not fruit. It's only good soil that bears fruit. The Apostle John states in 1 John 2.19, They went out of us. Why? Because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, what? They would have abided with us. They would have remained. Exact same Greek word that Jesus uses in John 15. If they would have been of us, they would have abided. But they went out so that it would be shown, so that it would be made visibly manifest, what? That they're not really of us. You know, people get sidetracked by Jesus describing the branches as in me. They really get hung up on that. The, the, the in me. When the focus of these vine parables, the parable of the vine, the parable of the vineyard, both for Israel, the backdrop, and of the true vine, Jesus, the backdrop is bearing fruit. That's the overarching theme of both, is not the in me, which people try to use to distort it. No, the whole evidence in both parables is fruit. Is it producing fruit? In Christ, there is fruit. And a little reminder, when you encounter a passage that is a little difficult, like this parable of the vine, and it is admittedly a little difficult, it's always beneficial to interpret these passages that are less clear by other passages that are clear. That's how you interpret the Bible. Romans 8 verse 1, For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John 10.27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them, not temporary life. And they will never 
perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Folks, considering all of this, John 15 is not provided by Jesus as an argument that a true Christian can lose salvation, but it is an assurance that every true Christian, every true branch that belongs to him will abide and will bear fruit. Why? Because our Father is the vine dresser, and He Himself will tend to it. We will bear much fruit. So amongst those who truly belong to Christ, there will be much fruit. There's always fruit among Christians. This is a this is, signifies a major line of demarcation between the old and new covenants. You see, most branches of God's vineyard under the old covenant, they failed to bear fruit. Most all failed to bear fruit, or, or their fruit was bad. Only a remnant ever bore fruit. A small fraction was fruit-bearing under the Old Covenant. Meanwhile, branches of the true vine in Christ, at the dawning of a new covenant, we will all bear fruit. Because God personally tends to us, and He prunes us, and He cleans us, we absolutely will bear much fruit. Folks, that is a promise that you want to take home. In Christ, there is is fruit. Once there is fruit, there's no turning back. Christ is going to shape you. Uh, The Father is going to prune you. He will dress you. He will clean you. And you are on your way to bearing much fruit. We're almost done. I have to hit this though. We can't can't leave this passage behind because he didn't talk about asking for whatever you wish. So we'll talk about asking for anything you wish. Uh, Got to, sorry. Verse 8. If you abide in me, and listen to this, and my words abide in you, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Key takeaway. Asking Whatever you wish is always contingent in verse 8 upon abiding in Christ's words. Verse 9, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. A little something here about keeping commandments. Yeah. Using Himself as a pattern of abiding with the Father, uh, in verse 10, Christ reveals that keeping His words 
and his commandments, his words and his commandments is tantamount. That means equivalent to keeping the Father's commandments. And therefore, our abiding in the word of Christ, which also makes us clean. It's also the cleansing agent, the pruning agent. And therefore, our abiding in the word of Christ, along with keeping Christ's and the Father's commandments, they serve both as the condition and the source of our ambition behind every prayer request we make. Therefore, we are not to pray for things that are ostentatious, worldly, materially, such as, you know, God make me rich, famous, cars, boats, vacation homes, flash, gold, jewels. We're not to pray for those things. Or conclude that when we set out on a conquest, for money and power, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, uh, that if we achieve them, that it can only be attributed to God's will for our lives. That's a false, false doctrine of the prosperity gospel. And rather, like many other pagans who have devoted their lives to becoming rich and famous, uh, Perhaps it wasn't God who set your heart to pursue such things. What that means is that just because you prayed for it, and perhaps some point later in life achieved it, it doesn't automatically mean that God is pleased with it. By comparison, when we are told to pray, asking for whatever we wish, there are conditions set of abiding in God's commands and in Christ's words. Therefore, when we pray, Father, by your Spirit, move me to sell my possessions and give to the poor so that I will have treasure in heaven. Christ's words. Christ commands. We can know that that is a result of God because it conforms to Christ and His Word. Father, make me content in all of my circumstances. Help me to labor hard with my hands, uh, to earn and to share with somebody who has need. Brother who has need. Or, you know, Father, make me a fisher of men. Prompt me to evangelize with the gospel, just as my Lord commands, so that your Son will be glorified through winning the souls of men. That is how you pray for whatever you ask when you abide in the Word of Christ. These are His commandments. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. These, these are to be the focus of our prayers. Sure, Ask God for those things which are on your heart. Things you may or may not know whether they're God's will. But we do too little asking for what God has actually offered. Folks, praying the will of God. We've talked about this 
for a good while. It is how Scripture teaches us to pray so that through God's words dripping off from our lips, we can be pruned of the lusts of the world so that we can bear much fruit. We are slowly adapting. We are learning how to pray. I'm learning as you're learning. We're learning how to pray uh, just like that on our Wednesday evening prayer meetings uh, so that we can be cleansed by the word of Christ to bear much fruit. Flesh makes it a difficult process. But we're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep working on prayer as we move through the book of Acts. It's God's will that we be devoted to this type of prayer. Uh, So I, I am very optimistic through this passage. We are going to be fruit bearers. In fact, we are going to bear much fruit. Father guarantees it. In Christ there is fruit. And then let's finish with thinking about all this fruit. All this wonderful fruit that we're going to enjoy and how God is going to be glorified through this passage with verse 11. These things I've spoken to you that your joy may be in you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Is it joyful to serve the Lord and bear fruit? Are we promised in this passage that we will bear much fruit? Oh, that is the source of our joy. And Christ promises to give us that joy. You know, the purpose of the passage is it's not to incite us about worrying about whether we're going to lose our salvation. No, it is to fill us with joy because as God's eternal possession and by the Father's care and provision, Jesus assures on the night he was betrayed that it is God's will that we bear much fruit. That is good news for us. Let's close in prayer. Father, as you have made a mighty promise, not only to keep us and protect us and nurture us as your vine, but that through us you would bear much fruit. That the Holy Spirit would work in us and amongst us that we might live in a manner that is pleasing to you, loving one another in all respects, and praying for one another just as Paul did for Colossae, that we will bear much fruit. Father, be pleased with this. Be glorified with this. And Father, bring people together this Sunday. Strangers, neighbors, those who've never even attended to come in and hear the gospel on the day we celebrate Christ's resurrection, Lord. Be glorified, open hearts, that they would receive the gospel truth and that they would live bearing fruit just as we do as well. Lord, thank you for this evening. What a, what a nice opportunity and what a blessed time to come together and celebrate all that you have done for us through your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. amen.